Where are you from? Where are you from? It's a common question that most folks ask, at least when exchanging pleasantries when they first meet someone. Perhaps you ask someone's name, their occupation, what they do. Then maybe you ask, where are you from? Sometimes the question isn't simply part of the normal pleasantries. You ask it in response to something that you see, some kind of dress or some kind of strange behavior. You see somebody doing weird things like eating pizza with a fork and a knife. Where are you from? Or a, a chicken leg with a fork and a knife. Like, Pick that thing up. Where, where are you from? The way people act, the way people dress oftentimes causes us to be curious where they come from, where they get these customs. When I was in college, when you saw someone with five times too large jeans and a t-shirt that stretched down to their ankles, you didn't even need to ask the question. You knew they were from Baltimore. Or when you saw someone with a long, dark beard, you heard them yelling across the yard, yep. Y'all need to get that one right, okay? <laughs> or they're Philly, from Philly, right? You, you don't have to ask, wait, where are you from? Or, or when you're in a con- conversation, or you met someone who, in the heat of summer, 99 degrees outside, with the humidity far higher than that, they have on jeans, slouch socks, and Timberland boots. And they're talking about Bama's. And young, you're like, oh, you from PG or DC. How people act, how people dress, how people behave often gives out strong indicators of where they're from. Well, in our passage this morning, James is concerned where people are from to only the locations, the locales that he cares about are far more important than cities in America. James seems to think that where people come from rise above simply this earth to more deep realities. People come from either heaven or from hell. And the way you can determine which one is their origin, their source, is by how they live and how they talk, how they conduct themselves. So where are you from? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, we've been in this study of the epistle of James for the last five or six weeks now. We'll be in it for maybe three or four more weeks. As a reminder, James is the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. James is one of the first writers in the New Testament, and James is writing as the half-brother of Jesus, telling other believers of how to live under the lordship of Jesus, what it looks like to be a Christian. So this morning, we'll look at James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 together. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. James says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct... Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, 
Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Here's what I think is the main idea of James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. The main idea of the sermon this morning. There are two kinds of wisdom. One that breeds hatred and the other that brings harmony. So be wise, but in the right way. There are two kinds of wisdom. One that breeds hatred, the other that brings harmony. So be wise, but in the right way. As we walk through verses 13 through 18 together, we'll hang our thoughts around three points this morning. Number one, we'll see that wisdom works itself out. Wisdom works itself out. We'll see that in verse 13. Number two, then, we'll see the wrong kind of wisdom. In verses 14 through 16. And lastly, we'll see the true wisdom that we need in verses 17 through 18. So number one, wisdom works itself out. Number two, we'll see the wrong kind of wisdom. And number three, we'll see the true wisdom we need. Number one, wisdom works itself out. James starts off here with a question. It's one of his favorite ways to teach by asking questions. If you drop your eyes down a bit to the start of chapter 4, verse 1, you'll see he starts off the conversation there with another question. The questions that James poses throughout this book are not simple yes or no questions. They're questions meant to cultivate thinking, intended to produce deep self-reflection. In verse 13, James asks, who is wise and understanding among you? The very question demonstrates that there's an expectation that Christians should be wise, should be people of understanding. I mean, you wouldn't ask a question to a group that you know doesn't apply. You wouldn't go to a class of kindergartners and ask, who is mature among you? Uh, who? Or you wouldn't address a group of octogenarians of 80-year-olds and ask, who among you is ready to go run in the Olympics? No, no, the nature and the makeup of the group you're addressing usually determines what you expect of them. And so when James here writes to a group of Christians in a local church, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, of the all-wise God, he has certain expectations of them. There should be marks of their maker on them. Wisdom and understanding. The Apostle Paul makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 5, when he shames the Corinthian church for taking each other to court. He asks there, is, is no one among you wise enough 
to settle a dispute between the brothers? Christians should be wise. Now, wise here doesn't mean being a whiz at Bible trivia. And you crush it at game night with your knowledge of biblical people and places and events. You know you deep in Christian circles when game night no longer consists of playing spades and dominoes, but now is Bible knowledge games. No, being wise doesn't mean you're a Bible trivia whiz. Neither does being wise mean that you know a bunch of random information about a lot of things. You're like a walking Wikipedia. You're the ideal party partner to have a conversation with or ideal possible contestant on Jeopardy. And no wisdom in the Bible is the skill of living a godly life. As one person explains it, it's the application of our doctrine and theological understanding to real life. It's taking what I believe and seeing how it plays out in how I live. Perhaps you might picture James here. Posing the question in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? And every hand of the congregation eagerly going up. Everybody has their hand up really quickly. I mean, especially considering that the opposite question might be, well, who is foolish among you? Nobody fesses up to that. No, everyone is raising their hand. Yeah, I'm wise. I'm understanding. But James isn't looking for a show of hands. He's looking for a show of habits. He says at the end of verse 13, by his good conduct, let him, let the one who claims to be wise, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. It reminds us of what James keeps hammering, the right display of your doctrine. Verse 13 calls us to think especially of James's words in chapter 2, verse 18, where he notes, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You see how James just keeps pressing this issue over and over again in his book. He's calling out our baloney. James is not about cultural Christians. James is averse to cookie-cutter Christianity. Right, right. You know, you have all the right lingo, all the right theological principles, right? You say all the appropriate things around other Christians to give a good impression of yourselves. James keeps pressing pictures, proof. Don't tell me, show me. If you've got kids or have been around kids of family members or friends over the last few years, perhaps you know the frustration of this new math. That's being introduced in curriculums now. This math that doesn't simply care about you saying the right answer, that five times five is 25, but expects you to show how you got there. Draw X number of circles or boxes or arrays to, to come to the conclusion. It's frustrating because us older folks just know the answer. Look, it's 25, okay? They ask you to show your work. In this strange way, this new math is meaning to make sure that students actually grasp the concepts, not just blurt out answers. Well, that's the same same thing that James is after. He wants to make sure we've actually grasped Christianity, 
right? What it's all about is not simply spoken with all the right words, with all the correct doctrinal theological principles and precepts, all the right theological grammar. Real Christianity is shown. Show me your wisdom by your works, by your consistent conduct. Especially, James says, as it's carried out in the meekness that exemplifies wisdom. So we see here, it's not just a product that James expects, good works that that come from wisdom, but it's also the manner in which those works are to be done in meekness. You know that your parents used to tell you to go do something. You can't just go and like snatch the covers on your bed and like pound off the room. No, No, they don't care simply that you do it. They care the manner in which you do it. James says true wisdom is not just do some good works. James says true wisdom is doing good works in a certain way, in the manner of of meekness. Meekness is is not weakness. It's strength under control. It's tamed, like the illustration James gave of the tongue last week. Meekness is a kind of humility that doesn't need to loudly boast about one's worth or works, that doesn't show off to show others up. Rather, one commentator notes that meekness is a self-subdued gentleness toward God and toward others. In the Greek culture into which James wrote, into, into which many of these Christians would have lived, gentleness, meekness, was reviled, was looked down upon. I mean, meekness was the stuff of servants, of housemaids, of slaves. If if you were somebody, or if you wanted to be somebody, you needed to act like it, boast a little bit, because you made it. And even if you haven't made it, then you need to fake it until you make it. the, The projection of strength of skill, of ability, of confidence was what was most valued. That's still the case, isn't it? Even among Christians, these kinds of things can be prized. I mean, think in our day, people want you to know that they're wise. They want to make sure you know how much theology they know. Or people want you to look at how courageous they are in standing up against culture. Boisterously, boisterously proclaiming at every outlet and at every instance that I'm a real Christian. Look how bold I am. Friends, meekness doesn't mean that you're mealy-mouthed, that you're soft-spoken. You should have strong convictions from the Bible. But that does not mean you need to have a strong personality. It doesn't mean that you need to state your case as strongly as possible in every single circumstance. It doesn't mean you need to be at the forefront of every conversation, of every controversy, of every bit of criticism. And one of the things I've noticed recently is that as the world and our country in particular grow more secular and more radically opposed to the Bible's teachings on things like gender, There's a push in some Christian circles for men to stand up and be men. That's good. I mean, God created two separate genders for a reason. And men ought to act like men. But, But friends, sometimes what you hear is an idea of masculinity, of manhood, 
that doesn't rise above how the world traditionally describes or defines masculinity. Real men wear beards. Real men, <laughs> real men drive big trucks or carry big guns. Be careful that you don't adopt an idea of manhood that the Bible never prescribes. There's a certain bravado, a certain machismo that supposedly marks a real man, one that portrays only strength and only aggression. Now, I'm not against beards or big trucks, okay? Don't get me, don't get me wrong. But consider how the world defines these things as a real man, and then consider the men of the Bible. Was not Moses a real man? He wasn't afraid to exhibit great courage and zeal in opposing wickedness. Like when he came down from Mount, Mount Sinai and saw the people worshiping a golden calf and he went berserk. He raised up an army and said, let's go kill everyone who is a counterfeit worshiper. But you know how the Bible ultimately sums up the man Moses? Numbers chapter 12, verse, 13, uh, verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the other people on the face of the earth. It wasn't, was Jesus not a real man? And he stood against the evils of his day. He went into the temple and turned over tables. He challenged very openly the false religion of the Pharisees and other spiritual leaders. But you know how Jesus described himself? Not by how bold or macho he was. No, when Jesus wants to de describe himself in a single sentence, he does so in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. I am meek or gentle and lowly of heart. And you know what Jesus says next? Learn from me. Are you learning your idea of masculinity from the world or from the Bible? From, from the God-man, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are many Christians these days who claim in their loud, boisterous tones to be taking a stand for Jesus. Probably couldn't stand Jesus if he lived among us. They'd be calling Jesus Christ himself a coward. Take a stand, do something. Rebel against this false government, how they're pressing in against our beliefs. Go do something, Jesus. Stop being a wimp. But what many might call wimpy, James calls wisdom. The wisdom that expresses itself in learning not just what Jesus said, but how he acted. He was meek, gentle. It's what Paul calls husbands to be with their wives and elders to be with their churches. And here's what James calls all Christians to demonstrate. Do good works if you really would be wise in a spirit of gentleness, of meekness. Who is wise in understanding this kind of person? One whose way of life is marked by good works, good conduct done in humility done in gentleness. Is that what marks 
your life? Is that what defines you? Perhaps that's something of James would ask in his day. I mean, your hands were initially all raised when I asked who is wise and understanding among you. Have you had to lower them a bit as I've kind of informed what true wisdom looks like? Are you really wise after all? Or is what you possess simply a counterfeit kind of wisdom? Well, that leads to our second point where we see James expose it. Yeah, there is a, a way to be wise, but all wisdom ain't the same. And point number two, James shows us the wrong kind of wisdom. James says in verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That but there at the beginning of the verse serves as a strong contrast. James just said the, the good conduct and meekness are to, to show wisdom or to demonstrate what wisdom looks like. But, James says, if you have the opposite of that, if jealousy and selfish ambition are what mark your life, then don't boast about being wise. You'd be telling a lie. There's nothing wise about the way you think or the way you behave. Now, jealousy and ambition in and of themselves are not bad things. The Lord God said that he is a jealous God. He is jealous for his own glory, and we should be as well. And Paul made it his ambition to preach the gospel of Christ where Christ had not been named. So that Christ would be magnified and unreached peoples would be converted. But it's these addendums here that make jealousy and ambition incompatible with wisdom. It's a bitter jealousy, James says. A selfish ambition. It's a jealousy and ambition that are self-serving, self-seeking. Not out for God's glory, but your own. And it's willing to destroy everyone in your path to get the praise and recognition that you want. It turns people created equal to you and for the same purpose as you, it turns those peoples into rivals in a never-ending comp uh, competition of one-upmanship. I mean, you see it on display often among Jesus' disciples. On several occasions, after several weighty moments, after Jesus is transfigured on a mountain and comes down and having just shown his full glory, or after Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper, telling his purpose to suffer and die for sinful people. After those glorious things, those weighty moments, the disciples leave those and immediately look among themselves asking, who is greatest among us? Well, that's what happens whenever we turn our eyes from Jesus. You see, we are all glory seekers. We were made to behold glory. And when we turn away from beholding God's glory, we try to look for it somewhere else. We try to find it in ourselves. And we try to exalt ourselves to the place reserved only for the Lord. And we use anyone else, we'll put anyone else down in order to put ourselves up on a pedestal. It's the opposite of the meekness, the humility that James just said marks true wisdom. It's the opposite of the wisdom and humility and meekness that Jesus Christ displayed. He was the embodiment of wisdom. 
And consider the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2. He tells the Philippian church, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceits, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. This problem, this temptation of selfish ambition was true for the Philippians, just as it was true for the congregation that James is writing to, and just as it is true to us. The solution is to serve others instead of serving only yourself. Looking to Jesus and adopting his mindset of selfless service for the sake of others. He humbled himself by descending from heaven, taking on a body, dying on the cross for our sins, and rising from the grave for our salvation. Jesus did all these things the Bible continually tells us over and over and over for us. Jesus served others. So how can suppose that Jesus' followers then serve only themselves? How can a Christian have bitter jealousy or selfish ambition? It's incompatible to who you claim to be, who you claim to follow. And notice in verse 14 where James locates these vices. In the heart. He says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, the heart is the home of all your deepest desires, all your deepest longings and convictions and beliefs. It's the control center of all your life, of all your actions, of all your attitudes. You say you're wise, but what do you have in your heart? Is it envy? Jealousy? Self-centered motives? And think about yourself. What is it that you daydream about? When you let your mind wander, where does it take you? Does it put you in somebody else's shoes? With somebody else's spouse? I mean, their marriage is definitely better than yours. You wish you had it. Perhaps it puts you in somebody else's job. With someone else's salary. With someone else's home. Does your heart harbor bitter jealousy for someone else's gifts? Does it drive you to want their position? When I'm up here preaching, like right now, are you in your heart saying, I could do way better than that? <laughs> Many of you probably could. <laughs> or do you think I can never do that? And allow bitterness to set in your heart rather than gratitude for the gift of God for receiving his very word. Rather than recognizing that maybe your gift isn't preaching, but look at all the other gifts God has given you. Do you let your heart lead you to a road of despair so that it drives you to desire what others have and leads you to destruction? When you see someone else serving 
or being recognized for their service in the church? Do you secretly disdain them? Thinking you should be doing what they're doing or you've done far more than they've done and you don't get any other recognition. We'll see in a couple of weeks, we move into chapter four. James is going to talk about how all these internal things are what lead to quarrels and to fights. But even here, you see, he wants us to focus on our hearts. Do some investigation, put, put an x-ray into the inside of you. What's going on in your heart? What's inside of you? Is it bitter jealousy? Is it selfish ambition? Then whatever you call yourself, you must not call yourself wise. James explains in verse 15, because this wisdom, if you can call it that, is not the wisdom that comes from above, from, from God who gives good gifts. It is from below. It is earthly. It is unspiritual. It is demonic. It is a worldly wisdom, a wisdom from the world system that since sin entered into the world is always opposed to God all the time. Opposed to God and all its purposes. First Corinthians chapter one sets the wisdom of the world up against the wisdom of God. The wisdom of the world thinks the very idea of God, the God of the Bible, at least, is foolish. The wisdom of the world thinks the ways of God are wrong, especially this idea of a God who looks weak, who suffers and dies on a cross. That's the person I'm supposed to worship. So Muslims can never accept Jesus. So many religions can never accept the God of the Bible. He's weak. He suffers and dies. I mean, strength, status, prestige. Remember, that's what we all value. And so the envy and rivalry that James talks about in verse 14 are right in line with what the world values. Do whatever, say whatever to set yourself up for glory. This is a worldly wisdom. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. You notice how, how real the, the dark, demonic world is to James? Uh, this, this is not kind of hocus-pocus stuff for James. I mean, in chapter 2, verse 19, he said that even demons believe great doctrine, that God is one. They tremble at that reality. They just don't respond in repentance. In our passage last week, he noted demonic activity at work in speech. If you look up at verse 6, at the end of verse 6, he says that the tongue is set on fire by hell. And here he says there is a wisdom of the world that is demonic in nature. James believes in demons. And he doesn't simply believe in demons and limit their activity to demon possession. Or to people wearing devil costumes last Monday for Halloween. No, James says, if you want to really see the devil and his demons at work, all you got to do is look around you or look inside you. Look at how folks talk and how folks think and how folks act. Are they out for themselves? Do they devalue God and others in favor of distinguishing themselves? Do they tear other people down or take advantage of them for their gain? Anytime self or others are esteemed before God in the place of God, it is demonic. 
The devil wants anyone other than the Lord to get glory. Anyone other than God to look powerful, to look important, even if it's you. And so you get your little promotion and you walking around like you good stuff. And sometimes you get all this stuff and say, the Lord gave this to me. As you proudly boast about it and put others down and the devil is totally fine with you boasting just as long as you know that his demons are at work. Or that you don't know that his demons are at work. Satan wants you to enjoy the the people on the stage. Long as you don't notice who's pulling the strings. James wants to expose what's really going on. Friends, understand that nothing is neutral. There are spiritual forces out to shape you. To turn you in on yourself, to turn a group you identify with in on itself. There are spiritual forces out wanting you to focus on you. I hope you understand that when you watch CNN or Fox News. When you consume news media or social media. When you watch clip after clip on YouTube or TikTok, when you watch documentaries on Netflix or Prime, it's all trying to form you in significant ways. There is a wisdom of the world that is constantly at work and that wants you to exalt yourself or to exalt your strength, that wants to exalt people and platforms and policies and parties, anything and anyone other than exalting God. Your job is to be aware of that and to be pushing back against that. To to not be conformed to this world and its wisdom, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And part of how your mind is renewed is by feeding on scriptures like James chapter 3. Understanding that there is a worldly wisdom out there that's trying to win your heart. So, saints, what are you constantly consuming? What are you thinking about all day? None of it is neutral. We live in a spiritual world as spiritual beings. Are you fighting against the forces of the world? Are you listening, learning, reading, watching with a discerning spirit? Taking things through the grid of scripture. I don't mean you can only you know, come to church 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? But it means you need to know what the Bible says, right? There's a worldly wisdom, don't be captivated by it. There's a demonic wisdom, don't worship it. Because if you do, don't be surprised by what it produces. Look at verse 16. Strife, disorder, every vile practice. Notice that the the selfish ambition and jealousy that that James says in verse 14, start in the heart. Don't stay there. If you don't address what's going on in your heart, you can be assured that it's going to show up on the big screen. Right. That selfish ambition and jealousy that start in the heart in verse 14, that are signs of worldly wisdom, make their way out in verse 16. And they produce all kinds of chaos. Make it so that you're willing to do anything, do any vow practice to get to the top. Ain't that the case? Folks, be cutthroat, willing to do anything. Just look at some of the tactics 
and the words being deployed by some of the candidates for the upcoming midterm elections. Listen to their tone and their temperaments. On both sides, it's like no holds barred. People are willing to do and say anything to get ahead, to get your vote. The question is, do you wholeheartedly approve of their actions? Do you join in with their language and with their tone? Are you willing to say or do anything to win this country back? Or to keep this candidate in his or her seat? No matter who it hurts. Know that ultimately it might be hurting you. All worldly wisdom breeds is hatred and division. And not hatred of sin or division from sinfulness, but hatred of God and his ways and his people and division among us. James still wants us to be wise. He's still asking the question of verse 13 with expectation. Who is wise and understanding among you? But he wants us to be aware of and on guard against possessing the wrong kind of wisdom. And instead to embrace the right kind of wisdom, the only kind of wisdom that any Christian should embrace, a true wisdom. Brings us to our last point, third point, the true wisdom we need. Point number three, the true wisdom we need. The wisdom we need looks different from that of verses 14 through 16. And it looks different because it comes from a different source. While there's a wisdom of the world that destroys us and others, there's a wisdom from above that makes us holy and whole and that brings harmony. It's a wisdom from God. We receive it from him. It's from above. Even that description there reminds us of our place, doesn't it? God is above us. We are under him. That arrangement will never get switched. Because God is over us and we are under him, he has the right to tell us how we should live and we have the obligation to obey him. He made us to live under him as his image bearers, to reflect his holy image and to show the watching world what God is like. Everything good we have, including wisdom, is only because he gives it to us. I mean, remember back in chapter 1, verse 17, James says, every good and perfect gift comes from where? From above, from the Father of lights. Friends, it's amazing that God would give us any good gifts because we don't deserve any of his goodness. We've all rebelled against God. We've all turned away from him. We've all sought to live life on our own terms to make a name for ourselves instead of making a name for God. We've all imbibed and exhibited the kind of worldly wisdom that hates God and his purposes. So that what we deserve from God, what we deserve from God to send us from above is only fire and brimstone. Like when he sent the people of Sodom and Gomorrah for their rebellion. What our sins deserve is destruction, but praise God that instead what God sends us down is good gifts. What God sent us down was the best gift, the perfect gift, the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, who became a man to live for us and to die the death that we deserve to die. 
to take all our sins on Calvary and to die upon the cross so that all who turn from their sins and trust in him would be saved. Jesus Christ rose up from the grave and calls us all now to repent and believe in him alone for salvation, to be reconciled to the Father above. My friends, if you're here this morning and you've never done that, that's the most important thing you need to do. You cannot have the gift of wisdom without receiving the giver of wisdom. You must receive Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God himself, the one who is wisdom of God, before you get any of the material blessings of wisdom that come from him. And through faith in Christ, all of us who trust in him are given his spirit. The very spirit of God who is all wise lives inside of us and produces the kind of godly wisdom that James outlines in verse 17. I mean, just look there, some of the marks of this godly wisdom, this wisdom from above. Look at the fruit it produces. James says first, this kind of true wisdom is is pure. It's undefiled. It's pure because of its source. It comes from God himself. It's his wisdom. And as God is pure, so whatever comes from God is pure. Psalm chapter 12, verse 6 says, the words of the Lord are pure. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Or Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, we read, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the the Lord is, is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eye. God's wisdom is pure and it purifies us. It revives us. It enlightens us. It satisfies us. It makes simple people like us wise. It has no motives for evil, but rather holy purposes. It trains us to love God and love God's people and to live upright and moral lives. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 11 says, even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. Well, so it is with the child of God. He makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright, like his heavenly father. The second mark of godly wisdom that James notes here is that it is peaceable or peace-loving. God's people should love peace. I mean, especially considering that our current status with the creator that we rebelled against is that we have peace with him. I mean, the amazing thing is that we sinners as we are still sinning as we do, we can say confidently that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God made peace with us at the cost of his son. How can we not be people who go out and seek to make peace? Whereas the wisdom of the world is marked with bitter jealousy and rivalry, tearing others apart, the wisdom from above, James says, seeks harmony, not others' harm and not others' downfall. It is not contentious. It's not combative. The wisdom from above doesn't go out looking for a fight. 
It doesn't post provocative things on social media to, to in, intentionally spark an outrage or a debate. It doesn't come home after a long day picking at flaws or nagging your spouse, needling them into an argument. I mean, Jesus Christ came into a world full of flaws, full of sin, but he didn't come arguing with people about how bad the world was, entering into a debate about how disgusting it was. No, he came to reconcile the world to God. And, and those who would possess his wisdom show it by possessing his reconciling spirit. Godly wisdom doesn't run away from every fight, but it doesn't enter every fight either. It's not eager to quarrel. That's a worldly, not a godly trait. And saints, we no longer belong to the world. We belong to God. He sent his son Jesus to be our peace to bring us near to God and to break down the dividing wall of hostility that stood against people. And so we should live like what Jesus did actually accomplished something. I mean, even in our church covenant, we pledge to, to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in a bond of, of peace. I wonder how well you're keeping that commitment. I mean, it takes, it takes effort to maintain something. Think about your house or your car or your body. You let that thing go and you watch what happens. Well, saints, if you can't let your physical body go and expect it to be okay, neither can you let your church body go on kind of auto mode and expect things to just be okay. No, it takes work to maintain the unity of the spirit we have in a local church and a bond of peace. It takes coming here consistently and building deep relationships deep enough so that when deep disagreements come up and they will in the life of a church, that the deep love you share in Jesus and the deep love you have for one another that's been consistently displayed serves as a strong adhesive to keep you together when a particular issue or threat is threatening to tear you apart. Friends, being peace-loving is proactive. It has legs, it moves, it pursues people more than issues. It pursues peace instead of pouring into conflict. It is a product of the peace that we have with the Lord through Jesus Christ and the wisdom that it produces. I notice next James says that the wisdom from above is, is gentle. It's similar to what he said in verse 13 about meekness being required. It's not full of loud boasting in one's own abilities or one's own gifts. It's not self-centered like worldly wisdom. Rather, the wisdom from above is, is considerate of others. It's gracious. It's kind. Friends, where are all the kind Christians at? It's okay to be a kind Christian. Where you find one, James says, is where you'll find a wise Christian. This godly wisdom, James goes on to say, is also open to reason. It's compliant. It's willing to yield. You know, sometimes the world criticizes Christians for being too close-minded. Uh, they wish Christians would be a little more open to reason, to others' opinions. Oh, well, that's not so much what James is saying here. 
He's not saying to, to open your mind so wide that you never close your head or your heart around any firm convictions. As G.K. Chesterton once warned, do not be so open-minded that your brains fall out. In other words, don't be so open-minded that you lose all sense, all morals, all convictions. No, friends, but we need to have firm, closed minds and hearts unwilling to yield on a number of things. We need to have closed-minded, unyielding hearts and heads unwill un unwilling to yield on the deity of Christ. Unwilling to yield on the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. Unwilling to yield on justification by faith alone. Unwilling to yield on the definition of marriage as between one man and one woman. Unwilling to yield on the God-designed binary nature of gender as there being either male or female. These are things that we cannot and must not yield to if we will be faithful to the Lord. Friends, there are things that we have to be unyielding to. But friends, that list has limits. It's not every single thing, every single point of doctrine that we can be unyielding on. Godly wisdom, James says here, shows some flex. It yields. It bends a little bit. Now, I know for some of us that that kind of language sounds like it can lead to theological drift. And we need to be on guard against that, especially in a world where so many are trying to loosen the Bible standards to accommodate to culture. But we also need to make sure that we are not harsher or tighter than the Bible is so that we never accommodate to other genuine Christians. The reality is the Bible doesn't hold every single thing with the same exact weight. Trusting in Christ alone, for instance, does not hold the same weight as when you worship Christ alone during the week. I mean, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. That people gather together to worship the Lord is what's most important, Paul says. When, however, is not as important. So don't spend all your capital, all your time arguing about which day you meet over. If someone has studied scripture, and is convinced in their own mind, then different days are permissible. And Paul goes on to say the same thing about certain foods that people abstain from, like meat. Their conscience is weak, and it won't allow them to eat what they once offered to pagans as non-Christians. Paul says a stronger Christian can eat and drink whatever he wants to the glory of God. But what that stronger Christian must not do is to criticize or judge that weaker Christian for being weak. Friends, in the life of a church, there are all kinds of things that will come up that we may disagree on. There's a bunch of things that we must agree on. We, we must agree on all the 18 articles in our statement of faith. If you ever come to one of those and you disagree about that, you need to come and let me and Pastor Warner know. We need to talk about that. Right? But there are some other things that we may disagree on. 
right? There are a bunch of other things that we can disagree on based on our understanding of Scripture, based on our convictions of our consciences that we must yield to one another about. From everything from how old the earth is to the exact timing of events and what happens when Jesus returns to who we vote for. Those things are important, but not all important. We have to show some flex. The Apostle Paul had very strong convictions, but he didn't push all his strong convictions on others. He was pliable to an extent in a way that he wasn't as a non-Christian. I mean, remember Saul, the non-Christian. He sought to lock up and kill people who disagreed with him. As a Christian, however, there were a new set of beliefs and a new mindset of behaviors. Godly wisdom doesn't wield a sword like unconverted Paul. Godly wisdom doesn't wield a sword like some radical Muslim militant demanding, agree with me or die. No, the wisdom from above is often open to hear others out, open to come and reason together, and depending on the issue, even if you disagree, open to yield to one another. James goes on to talk about how godly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. It does good to others. It provides for them. James has already shown us a picture of what this looks like. The wisdom from above sees people in need, people who need food or clothing, and it doesn't respond by shutting up your heart. No, it responds by, by giving people what they need, by showing mercy and providing for them. Lastly, James says here, this wisdom from above is impartial. It's sincere. It's not divided. It's not unwavering, like the unwavering heart in chapter one that will not be answered in prayer. Uh, No, the wisdom from from God is wholeheartedly committed to him. Not perfectly, but not hypocritically either. It it means to make much of God, not so much of, of myself. And it doesn't wear a mask so that my devotion to the Lord is only on certain days of the week or when certain people are around. No, this wisdom from the Lord shows itself in a commitment that is consistent over one's whole course of life. It totally submits to the Lord in every way and in everything. Friends, do do you see how radically different the wisdom of the world is from the wisdom of God? I mean, one is is wholly self-interested. The other loses itself for the glory of God and for the good of others. The, The one brings only division and conflict while the other brings peace. The one brings strife in every vow practice. The other produces togetherness. Notice how James closes this section by thinking about the peace that God wants us to have. He says in verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, the truly wise are known as peacemakers. Right? The truly wise ain't the ones who are always rising up and, and got something to say, always in somebody's conflict or controversy. The truly wise are peacemakers who sow in the field of God in this world in peace. They go about investing, making deposits, planting seeds of peace wherever they go. 
for others' good and for the good of themselves, both eternally and temporally. They tell people about Jesus who gave his life to make peace between us and God. They want people to have peace eternally. And they live like Jesus to make peace even now temporally. They exhibit lives that are humble and joyful and caring and sympathetic. And they sacrificially serve others and not selves. And James says the result of this person's life of the wise person's life, the the person who's truly wise, the person who who sows in peace, the product, the produce is a harvest of righteousness, an abundance of righteous behavior, both in your own life and in the lives of others around you. Others whose lives are marked by purity, by peaceableness, by meekness, by gentleness, by submissiveness, by whole devotion to the Lord, their lives look like that because they've looked at how you lived your life. And they say, I want that kind of life. Friends, don't you want to leave that kind of legacy behind? I mean, what do you want to be known as? Do you want the the temporal benefits, the temporal enjoyment of being known as someone who's always a kind of rah-rah guy? If If we want to fight, we know we got a fighter here. Or do you want to be known by the kind of person that produces the things that James talks about? Which, if you look at them carefully, look very similar to the the things that Paul talks about when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. A life of joy, gentleness, patience, right? A life that looks good, not only in other people's eyes, but in God's eyes. Saints, all of us are susceptible to and give in to, to living like the world being driven by worldly wisdom, we all desperately need God's wisdom. Ask him for it. James said back in chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously, and he will have it. It will be given to him. Call out to the Lord today to help you in these areas where you might be weak, to flush out the ways and the wisdom of the world that stay lodged in your heart. Ask God to kill your desire to fight, to criticize, to be hard-hearted, to be unyielding to others. Ask him to give you the gift of gentleness, of patience, of peacemaking. Turn to God's word for wisdom. You don't get wisdom from above by simply staring up at the sky. Now you get wisdom from above by staring at the scriptures. Meditate on James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 this week. Read James 3, 13 to 18, 10 times every day. And I guarantee you by Friday or Saturday, you can memorize the whole thing. What would it look like for you to, as you go on a walk, as you're driving in the car, as you're getting ready in the morning to, to mull over James 3, 13 to 18, to turn those words over and over in your heart like stones in your hand and watch as the Lord uses his word to shape you and to the kind of person that James says you should be. To get the kind of wisdom that you can't get if you use those same five minutes staring at your phone or the screen, you can get by staring at God's word. Give it to him and help each other to live this kind of way. God has given you a church body for a reason, to help you grow in godliness and for you to help other saints grow in godliness. Over lunch today or through text this week, Talk about some of the ways you struggle in some of these areas. 
Ask others to pray for you and to hold you accountable and do the same for them. Saints, through our witness, we can show the watching world what the surpassing wisdom of God looks like. Own that calling. Trust in God. Turn to him. Study his word and trust that he will produce in you the wisdom you truly need. Let's pray.